at the altar of something so profoundly sacred. I am in reverence because I get to experience, even though they have their story and their tales of woe, I get to feel the glory of what a tremendously precious, sacred being is on the table. Welcome to Evolution Sucks, out of the primordial ooze and into our best life. Welcome everyone. This is episode two of Evolution Sucks, The Way Forward. My guest today is a very dear friend, an amazing woman, Christine Polifox. She is a Jin Shin Tara practitioner. So before I officially introduce my first guest, I need to set the stage for what precipitated the incident in the tent that I now consider the pivotal moment in my life and now lovingly refer to as BT and AT, before tent and after tent. In mid-July of 2022, I had taken my two youngest kids mountain biking and then to an indoor rock gym in Grand Junction. During the rock climbing, I had a freak accident and broke a rib. I was barely able to get myself home as I was in tremendous pain. One month to the day from breaking my rib, I was riding my wife's e-bike down the dirt road from our house to where I walk our dogs, letting them run for a bit. Next thing I know, one of the dogs wiped out my front wheel and I hit the ground. Fortunately, I landed on the opposite side of my almost healed rib, yet couldn't remember riding home. I was concussed. This was the fourth concussion over the past three years. Not good. Two weeks after that latest accident was when we were camping as a family and the tent debacle happened. I described in episode one. So, I tell this story to illustrate how life, the universe, whatever force you want to call it, that I believe keeps encouraging us to evolve, had primed me for what came AT. The summer of 2022 had beaten me up both physically and emotionally. My force field was down. I was more than ready and open to meet my next guest. Sue Mason, the couples coach that my wife Meg and I had been seeing, lovingly and gently suggested after hearing about what went down in the tent and more of my trauma history that I reach out to a local practitioner, Christine Polifox, who dealt with trauma and who might be able to help me. I pretty much called her right away and in that first initial phone call, discovered we had some similar connections in Boulder from years past. We had a second phone call that was more about my trauma history and specific details, and although she expressed some doubts given the litany of my trauma I listed, we decided to start to work together. Although Christine had described how she works, I really had no idea of what to expect in our sessions. 
Right away after our first session, I knew I had made a good choice to work with her and begin to resolve some of the trauma that had been dogging me throughout my life. The subtlety of these sessions were profound. It seemed as if the session was less about re-experiencing or reliving any past trauma and more about reinforming the cells within the body around how they responded to past trauma, allowing them to reset to a trauma-free state. The mind can spin any number of stories about trauma, yet never really reconcile it. By addressing the body and its inherent memory, the way forward had begun. As I recently read over my session notes and my journal entries during this time, I was impressed with the day-to-day progress and the practice of using the tools I had been given during my sessions with Christine. As I left her office after my eighth and final session, I spoke these words out loud as I walked to my truck. It's a new day. It's a new way. And I had to laugh at those words. I have no idea where they came from, but that's what I said out loud. So, with no further ado, it is with great respect and appreciation that I welcome my guest today, Christine Polifox. Welcome. Good morning, Jamie. I have to say that I am so delightful, delighted to be here with you because as I was listening to you recount your history there, I was also reliving the times on your on my table that we shared together mm. and um and the amazing journey that was and also i'm just glowing inside because of my appreciation for you and how you dove into your journey as well as the incredible beauty and elegance of this healing approach mm. i just love it that's awesome yeah. yeah i really felt like um when i reached out to you I was sort of like bobbing in a sort of torrent sea and you were sort of this like ship passing by and I'm like, hey, help. You know, (laughs) I really felt like my life depended on making that phone call. Yeah. And uh, I do recall that initial like, oh, yeah, we had this boulder connection, right? There were multiple kinds of connections. It felt like that. There was a connection with Bob Flossy, acupuncturist. Right. His wife, Nora Nora. uh, Lee Wolf, who started Boulder School and Massage. And that's where I went to massage school in 1977 and 1978. And um, what else was there? I can't remember. Maybe we'll remember in the course of this this call. There were about two or three significant connections that were kind of uncanny. Yeah. Right away, I felt like this connection with you over the phone. Uh, yeah. And so we, I, I know you have a protocol of how you work with clients. Yeah. You would have initial kind of intake call to see if it's a good fit. Well, this call came out of the blue, and we sort of, <laughs> we sort of were like, oh, yeah, this is a good fit. But let's back up a little, okay, and, and go through your protocol. So we had to schedule another call. <laughs> And I think that call you might have you might have allowed that you were like after hearing the litany of trauma you're like hmm, I don't know if this is if I can take this on. That's because I'm so committed to results. Right. <laughs> yeah. And the complexity of what you were presenting was like, whoa, I don't know. Yeah. But I think I, I pulled a, a woo woo card. 
And that was, well, you know, we met. So probably the universe said, yeah, you're ready to take this kid on. <laughs> and he's ready to work with you. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, so then we, we began. And uh, we'll, we'll dive more into what those sessions were like. But I want to hear more about how you came to this path. And your journey and how did you come to this work that you're so adept at? I'm going to have to trim my answer down quite a bit. Sure. Because the story is like the entire journey of my life. Right. I get that. And there were very multiple, multiple kinds of inputs along the way, Mm. you know, as you can imagine. It was like a river with many, many tributaries pouring Uh in, you know, to fill fill the current. So um, I'm not going to emphasize so much like cultural comp context uh-huh. or familial context but I'll, and I'll just choose it was probably the what I consider the initiating incident yeah and that was when I was five years old I had to have appendicitis mm. and in those days in the 50s 1950s the way that they they handled it with children is they didn't really prepare them mm-hmm. they didn't really inform them well they were just technicians wanting to do their work. Sure. And so my father, at the very least, told me, they're going to put you to sleep and you won't feel anything. But being five years old, I couldn't even comprehend that idea because my little mind said, if, someone, if I'm asleep and someone cuts me open, I'm, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to feel it. And I kept having this image of the long, eight-inch-long kitchen knife my mother used to <laughs> cut vegetables and meat when she'd pro- And I just pictured that that's what we're going to use on me. <sighs> And so, and I was not allowed or raised in a way to advocate or push for my concerns. So I just had to just sit with this tremendous terror mm. at the impending procedure. And so also in those days, they used ether anesthesia, which was administered by a mask. Mm-hmm. And so I remember being wheeled in the operating room and I at least tried to pitch for my my own niece, saying, can my mother be here with me? And they just said, no, 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 no. And they just dismissed my concern. And so I was surrounded by a team of big people. I remember big people hovering over me, a big bright light. And they put on the mask, and my experience was that I could not breathe. Mm. So I started to panic and resist, and they restrained my arms. And they just plowed ahead. And so... I just remember the horrible struggle of not being able to breathe, the terror of that moment, and then I went under. So I was left in my own body, mind, memory, was that I died. I died on the table. Wow. So basically, that whole experience was repressed completely Mm -hmm. in terms of that moment of feeling like I died. What I was left with, though, was nightmares, sleep problems, an extremely sensitive nervous system, very high-strung nervous system, mm-hmm. um, a tremendous sense of powerlessness in my life that was reinforced by my family context um, and Mexican culture, being a Chicana, and also um, hopelessness, helplessness, mm-hmm. fear of big people, fear of authority, <laughs> a, lot of, wow. a lot of things, you yeah. know, fear that my needs don't count, fears that I don't count, Fear that the world is not safe, <laughs> the world is dangerous. I mean, tremendous load. At the same time, 
I had within me a very, very strong spiritual drive, mm. strong force pulling me forward through my life. So that surgery was like the initiation. Uh-huh. Yeah. And that over time, it translated into two things, a compelling desire to heal myself of these, this burden, yep. and then also that my life's work in the area of alternative healing and wellness. Mm-hmm. Given that I was drawn to healing, I had no interest at all because of that experience in going into the medical world uh-huh. at all. Yeah. So I just went alternative the whole way. The other factor that played into this mix is that even though I grew up on the Tex-Mex border, as a Chicana, as I mentioned, I had this lifelong attraction to things Japanese. Huh like the Japanese ethic. Uh And so there were three things that were very formative in this journey for me. One was um, macrobiotics. I was a macrobiotic cancer cook for 10 years, Mm. traveling around the country helping people do macrobiotic lifestyle and diet who were dying of cancer. Um, Jinshin Jitsu, which is the the hands-on approach that you experienced, which I was gifted with when I graduated from the massage school, one of my teachers at the massage school gave me a gift for the first training. Mm-hmm. And then also uh, later on in my adult life, the introduction to and being magnetized to Japanese buto dance, which is a very avant-garde post-World War II dance form that has to do with dancing the darkness, dancing the shadow. Uh-huh. And in the process of dancing, all that is hidden, suppressed, buried in shadow, deformed, ugly, pushed aside, one gets to the other side of it, which is the flower of the soul. And that really, all of those things really cast the flavor of my entire focus and my work, which is death, rebirth, and transformation. Wow. Starting with dying on that table, and then the the whole motivation of my life's work. And so... I studied Jinshin Jitsu... And it wasn't, in, and that was in 1978. But it wasn't until 1998 that I was drawn to more advanced training in it. And so, as I was looking around for local teachers in Boulder whose names I happened to remember from my earlier exposure, I couldn't connect, I couldn't find the contact information for them except for one, Stephanie Mines, who became my teacher for 10 years. Mm. And Stephanie is a psychologist whose focus was in trauma healing. But she discovered along the way that talking therapy was not necessarily productive Mm -hmm. as compared to the Jinshin Jitsu um, treatments that she was giving people who were progressing and growing and healing at a far more rapid rate. So she closed her talking counseling practice and merged the tool to two, which is using Jinshin Jitsu for the purpose of resolving trauma in the body. And... um, I studied with her for 10 years, as I mentioned. Yep. And um, as part of that, the whole, the whole Pandora's box of my own trauma, which I had said was t- totally repressed, that yep. whole thing exploded open. Oh, at that time? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. A little bit before. It was starting to, it was starting to leak out a little bit uh-huh. with other exposures to Stephanie Mines I'm not going to go into, but it's right. kind of like those, those universal exposures. Yeah, <laughs> connecting those universal dots. Yeah. But um, yeah. of all the wonderful other somatic approaches to trauma healing, 
most of which did not have any effectiveness with me. It was Jinshin Tara, which is her name for her work, mm-hmm. with Tara, Tara being the, the uh, Buddhist goddess of compassion. Yes. And also brain spotting, another trauma, trauma release form. So I um, did my own healing. I've worked with people for 22 years with a broad spectrum of trauma histories. It's more identified by what I don't do. I don't work with satanic ritual abuse. Uh-huh. I don't work with torture. Yeah. I don't work with addiction. I don't work with human trafficking. But I do work with a whole everything else and have worked with everything else. Right. Yeah. Wow. What a fascinating story. Um, and that at five, what today in 2023 would probably be considered a, a fairly benign operation, appendicitis, t- removing the appendix, back then laid the, the ground for yeah. what you're doing now. I mean, that, that, that's just mind-blowing. I know. A- and the... And the the compounding of of the after effects, yeah. in, in, in a way, like when I hear you describe that story, it's like, oh, you were suffering PTSD from that experience, oh, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Wow. Very much so. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I guess I, I'm I'm curious what your def- definition of trauma is then with that story in mind or my story like what is trauma like can you describe that a little bit sure sure i'll give you different different kinds of answers to that i think at the metal level the spiritual level it's about being lost and damaged Mm. and then finding your way home again Uh uh-huh i love that and then the uh the, psych, the standard, psycholog, uh, psych, standard psychological definition is that a person, when they experience something really threatening and scary and harmful and are left with, with things like numbness, dissociation, flashbacks, nightmares, anxiety, that's trauma in that definition. What I would say from the training that I've received in my perspective is that it's when the nervous system is exposed to something so life-threatening that it cannot cope. And so the nervous system has this amazing ability and creative and intelligent capacity to take that experience so so the person can survive it Uh and isolate it and sequester it and extract it and put it in a little compartment in the nervous system where it is sealed off and all the emotional and the physiological symptoms of the experience Uh and the memories that get sort of compressed and contracted so the person can survive. Wow. Which is pretty amazing. The problem is that, that this ability, um, it goes beyond its usefulness over time Mm. because what it requires in the human physiology and nervous system to pull this off is a lot of compromises within essential homeostatic systems like the neuroendocrine hormonal system Mm -hmm. and the blood sugar handling system and the immune system 
and the cardiovascular system and the musculoskeletal system. And so these, over the long term of a person's life, when the trauma is not addressed and resolved and integrated, can show up as degenerative disease, degenerative disease processes. Uh-huh. So, wow. so it's basically a nervous system overwhelmed by threat when there are not the resources within the person or the external circumstances to cope with it. Wow. So one thing I identified in myself when all of this trauma came to light was how the personality got formed around that trauma or or basically in reaction to that trauma. And I really could see in myself many of the ways I operated in the world were either to protect me or to uh, essentially guard myself, which I guess this is also a form of protection, but being more like outgoing, center of attention, sort of pushing the envelope of my personality forward. So there's two things going on. There was that outgoing alpha energy, and then there's this other part that like, don't, you're not going to, I'm not going to let you inside. You're not going to see the wounding that I've gone through. And so there was, you know, as I mentioned in the introduction, my force field is what was keeping me alive in many respects. And this summer when I had those couple of accidents and I was, you know, beaten down physically and emotionally, that force field had come down so that something, Grace, in this case, meeting you, Grace, could come in and reinform. So, I mean, I guess, don't we all have some form of trauma, would you say, or... Or is there anyone who's not trauma-free? I feel like everyone's experienced grief, heartbreak, loss, pain, suffering. So in a way, that the trauma is just one more thing to add into the mix of being human. Precisely. Yeah. And you're, you're having a conversation with someone who, who is a, a long-standing somatic body-based trauma um, healer. Yes. And so my perspective from that level is that, yes, I would say everybody has trauma and that you don't get to be on planet Earth as a human being without having that experience. Yeah. Because just as you mentioned that litany of things like loss, grief, betrayal, all of those things as human experiences, because so often those are not resolved or supported in a way that helps a person grow from them, the, the fee- feelings associated with that and the bodily organization and responses to those painful things uh-huh. just ends up, again, compressed within the nervous system. Yep. And so, um, and also the field of traumatology has evolved to the point where it goes beyond trauma being defined as something like a catastrophe or an auto crash or a rape or a, you know, domestic violence or something like that. Yep. It's understood now that fundamental human developmental needs are also part and parcel of being able to survive successfully as a human being. Mm. So things like having fundamental needs responded to and met at appropriate times, being seen, having who we are being mirrored and reflected back to us, Uh being valued, being um, cherished, 
being supported, being guided, all of these kinds of things that help shape a human being being capable and full of power and capacity also factor into that too. Mm. Yeah. Wow. The human journey. Totally. So maybe you could... I know when I came to you, I mentioned something called CPTSD. Yeah. And I had never heard of that. And after this incident in the tent where I had this download like, oh, you're suffering from PTSD because I could see the triggers that were being exposed. And I was like, where did they come from? And then I began this sort of uh, historical perspective uh, starting with my birth up into that present moment. And then I, I got home from that camping trip and, and got on the Google. And uh, I was like, found this thing called CPTSD, which is complex PTSD. And what I understood was the difference was not one off, like you mentioned a car accident or maybe a, a one surgery like you might have had or you know, if you're a combat vet and, you know, your buddy gets blown up and you keep recycling that. But the CPTSD seemed like a litany of trauma, like a, a just constant uh, experiencing of trauma. So that, I think, is what I came to you with. And maybe in that first conversation, you were like, hmm, geez, I don't know about this guy, Right. So had you heard of complex PTSD before? Yeah, that's a, that's a relatively new term. Uh-huh. And again, that's a diagnostic term in the field of psychology. Yep. Um, I would like to answer that from the perspective of Jin Shintara. Okay. Jin Shintara makes that same distinction, except uses the terms trauma and shock. Mm. So trauma from Jin Shintara is just like the, the kind of solitary incident that happens uh-huh. for a person, say, who's relatively um, well-supported in their world, has a, a pretty strong sense of capacity in how they live their lives. And so that can be pretty well handled and resolved so they can move along in their lives. Mm. Shock is a situation, which I'd call complex PTSD, where something so life-threatening happens to a person who who does not have the resources to deal with it either because they're too little they're too young they're just undeveloped or they're too infirm or they're elderly and vulnerable and the external at the same time the external circumstances do not support them Uh and being able to make their way and navigate through this so they're neither internally or externally supported and that becomes this, this kind of response throughout the nervous system that is just like, um, what is that kind of um, bullet that just shatters? Oh, right. Um, you mean a hollow point bullet. And then it just shatters. And so complex PTSD shatters throughout the entire nervous system. Got it. And so it becomes you know, layered because they keep having more and more and more incidences that happen. And, and each time something else happens, it deepens the, the neural pathways and the central nervous system, uh-huh. reinforcing it even more and more and more. It becomes more and more difficult to unravel because when it happens, when something is triggered, it just moves, it moves throughout the entire nervous system. Yeah. It's not specific 
singular, identifiable. A traumatic response is pretty identifiable, maybe just rapid heartbeat or something. Uh But shock is like everything kablooey. Wow. And it's more complicated to deal with. Uh So um, I'm going to pause here a second and gather my thoughts about that. Yeah, I'd never heard that distinction before between trauma and shock. That makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think I'll I'll, I'll leave that there because you might have another question that would lead me into the next thing. Well, so when I hear what you just described, I think, wow. I mean, someone who has that level of shock or CPTSD... They're screwed with a capital F, as grandmother used to say. Like, how are you gonna, you know, how are you gonna help this person? So here comes Jamie, and uh, lies on your table. And so describe to me, you know, and, and I know this could be one whole podcast, but how does Jinshin Tara work? How does what you do address what you just so brilliantly laid out as? what a person who might show up on your table is experiencing inside their body. Well, to answer that, Jamie, I'd have to say there's the Jinshin Tara approach, which you experienced, and there's also how I've developed it over the, over the years between a combination of Jinshin Tara and my, my exposure to 10 years of clinical research uh-huh. about Jinshin at CU Boulder's Neuroscience Department. Because... What I've done is kind of combine those two levels of experience. Uh-huh. So surrounding both of them is what I've created that I call a, a, an experience of safety and containment mm. within this, this field of, 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 of traumatic organization. Uh-huh. And precision. The, the researchers like precision. And so... I'll start with the what that leads up to the experience on the table and then follow up with what happens on the table, which is Jin Shantara. Mm. So what I've done is, um, you know, when a first person first calls me, we have that conversation. They get to share their story. Yep. And I'm really listening for themes because I'm listening through the ears of not just um, tr- the trauma neurobiology, but I'm listening through the ears of oriental medicine. Okay, yep. very different, different models. I'm listening for metaphors and themes and pathways for intervention. I'm also listening for how well the person might be suited to this work, uh-huh. how, how developed they are, how ripe they are for something like this, because it's very different than just going to get fixed. Yes. You know, it's very much different than just repairing something. Right. And then if, they, if we both get a yes, then the next part is what I consider laying the foundation it's another phone call where we explore their physiological, mental, and emotional symptoms that they are living with still, and evaluating each of those. And many, you know, many, they gave me many examples of those, and evaluating them in terms of their intensity prior to ever getting any treatment. It's uh-huh. like a, it's a here and now. This is what you're bringing to the work. Right. I take that information, then I translate that into Oriental medicine. And I create my initial treatment plan. So there's a structure. There's a sense of I'm entering into this like contained kind of structure. Yep. I'm walking into the terrain. I kind of know where I'm going. Yes. And, and that creates, I think, a sense of safety. On some level, I think that's going to register. 
And I think they really get that they're really heard. They, they can feel the sense of structure and maybe containment. Would you say that was true for Absolutely. you? Absolutely. I yeah. was just going to say, to interrupt that, is yes, 100%. In our conversation, not only did I intuitively know, but intellectually I was like, oh, I'm feeling safe speaking with you right now. Yeah. I'm feeling uh, that you're really hearing my words mm-hmm. and taking in my experience in a thoughtful way, in a caring way. And now, I mean, I know in, in 2023 technology, people are on Zoom calls and phone calls, and oftentimes you can have a, an effective uh, interaction that way. But typically a phone call, I'm not going to experience what I did with you in those first couple phone calls. Mm-hmm. So that sense of safety uh, was huge for me. Yeah. Because, I mean, here I am revealing things that perhaps only a handful of people have ever heard before. Mm. And I had never met you in person. So that, that was a leap of faith. But the leap was easy to do from my end once I, I felt into your caring and concern and actually your confidence that you could help me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was big. Yeah. Well, then, by then, after these two phone calls, yep. by the time a person shows up in the office on the table, a therapeutic relationship has been established. Yes. You know, we've, all, we've come a long way already. That's right. So then they are really ripe to receive this work. And so the Jin Shintara is a kind of uh, subtle touch intervention that is very that is very oriental. It's like acupuncture. Uh-huh. E- energy points on energy pathways in the body that are correlated to organs, and it's about you know removing the obstruction and the the stagnant energy flow so that it flows again. Because mm-hmm. remember what I said: trauma is a, a profound contraction, yes. and shutting down and sealing yeah. off, and so it 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 prevents a lot of openness and flow to receiving the incredible amounts of resources that are available out in the world. For a person, yeah. So Jinshin Tara opens up that contraction, so that there is a flow again, not just an energy. But it's interesting because the Jinshin treatments are called flows. Huh. So, and that flow, those flows, create a kind of energetic matrix within a within which a person is being held uh-huh. on the table, uh-huh. and the nature of that energetic matrix is, as the Japanese refer to it, harmony and balance. Beyond that, what I'd add is wholeness. Yes. So they are being held in, in a field of wholeness that allows them to, that allows them and actually cultivates a very high level of awareness and perception and witnessing on their parts. Uh-huh. Because also, in addition, Jinjin Tara is very, very gentle and non-invasive, and it's very, very slow. Yes. And the slow the slowness is part of the real magic because the traumatic response of the nervous system is knee-jerk, rapid-fire, blink of an eye. Mm-hmm. And Jin Shintara slows that bandwidth so slowly with that higher, higher witnessing capacity that the person's able to tune into the sensations that are there in their body anyway. Yeah. And allows them to feel the things that they were not able to feel because they were so defended for so long. 
And it's like it slows it down so much they can feel it, they can perceive it, and they can even then begin to separate themselves from the past and present here and now of those experiences. Uh-huh. So they're held in wholeness, they're held in gentleness, they're held in relaxation, they're held in positive bodily experiences. At the same time, they're able to observe and watch how their body has organized itself around threat. Yeah. And then that creates the experience of the option of choice around whether or not they need to stick to that storyline anymore or whether they can choose a different behavioral path or they can choose to feel differently or they can choose to conclude differently than they did originally. Yeah. A couple things about what you just said. You would uh, occasionally, because there was almost no talking during the sessions, you would check in and at one point in one of the sessions, you, you said, what are you feeling? And I said, wholeness. So the really interesting thing is this, this sense of, of the body is now in a state of, of relaxation, feeling very held, feeling very safe, and... I can admit, like, because I've had acupressure, I've had acupuncture, I've had almost every modality of, of Eastern medicine, uh, and obviously quite a bit of Western medicine, but this was so subtle. And I think it took me that first session to connect with you, because the way you began is you, you typically would begin at my feet, and check in and then you would move to my pulses and you would see what you would get from my pulse diagnosis you would check both pulses and then I felt like you were on your way to sort of what that treatment would look like but for me as as past trauma came into my consciousness there was no drama around seeing something or, or I wouldn't say I re-experienced it as much as it got reframed in an energetic way. And, and you're, you're much more uh, adept at explaining what really is happening. But from a layman's point of view, I was feeling like, wow, I just like saw this event, felt into it, and felt it release, and I don't even know what just happened, right? It was so subtle. And as we, and I just want to pause there for a second. I love that, it, that we were doing two sessions a week for four weeks, eight sessions. And you explained this is eight sessions. We're going to do two a week. And I felt like that I, I got this momentum going throughout our working together. And what, what I could see is after each session, I mean, this word flow that you used is so part of my life, whether it's skiing or mountain biking, you know, this whole thing of being in the flow and the sports psychology. I mean, I, when that happens, there's no better feeling. And I'll be frank, that never happened on a table. That always happened doing some extreme <laughs> adrenaline sport, right? But here I am on the table, and I'm like, 
dude, you're, you're feeling in the flow right now. And the flow was the, the recognition of trauma, of the trauma that I, in that moment I was experiencing and the releasing of that trauma somatically. And, and my, my brain was almost disengaged. I mean, it was really hard when you would ask me a question and I had to kind of bring my energy out of my lower Dantian, you know, my, my uh, lower realm there and bring it up to my head. And I was like, yeah, what? Oh, yeah. Okay, I'm feeling this. So that to me was was sort of the proof of what we were doing. But as he said, it was incredibly subtle, non-invasive, incredibly powerful. And um, I do I do want to share it. I don't know if this is a time, but just sort of the proof of, of what I was just saying. There are many experiences, obviously, that can back up this whole idea of, of trauma being released. But do you think it's a good time to segue into the cliff story? Do you remember how I had that experience the day after that, that session? Refresh my memory. I remember cliff. I remember yep. something. Yeah, but you have to... So it, part of the the way that these sessions would start is I, I would show up as empty as I could be, right? Not thinking about any past trauma, not expecting anything to happen. I just showed up kind of as an as a vessel, do your work on me, I'm all yours kind of thing. And I think you felt that. Mm-hmm. Um, in this session, I can't remember, I think it was like number two or three maybe, uh, all of a sudden, you may have even said something about, uh, like around falling. And that triggered this experience I had where I fell off a 35 foot cliff on my mountain bike. And I was like, well, yeah, I mean, that was definitely traumatic, but it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily categorized as like somebody abusing me or a surgery as a baby. This was like an accident. But for most of this session, I kept falling off this cliff. I, I would repeat the fall. I distinctly to this day can recall what I felt. I, I was pretty uh, convinced, like 100%, that this is how you die. So I kind of relaxed and fell through this blackness and then boom, hit the ground and opened my eyes. And so in this session with you, I was going through that. I go through the fall. Then I go through the first responders, you know, packaging me up at the base of this cliff and then having to work their way down the rest of it roped in and then they got me in the box the ambulance and then the ambulance ride I basically passed out I could hear the siren and then I get to the hospital so I kept recycling this experience like really in detail feeling it again not just in my head re-experiencing but feeling each of those moments, the going over, the impact, the ambulance, the hospital, some guy poking in my knee that was blown wide open, and then waking up with some guy in my room trying to climb out the window. I mean, all these things were part of that experience. I was in the hospital for three days. And I was like, well, that was interesting. I wonder what, you know, what will come of that 
I can't say I released it in that on the table in that session that we did. But the next day, I have this uh, loop that I walk my dogs on every morning. And it's like a mile and a half loop. And uh, there's one part of the trail that goes uh, above this cliff. It walks along the edge of this. It's not a straight drop, but it's, it's steep enough that if you were to fall off this narrow path, it wouldn't be fun. You might not die, but you would probably mess yourself up. And every time without fail that I walked this trail, and I have walked it hundreds of times, I always looked, the thought came, you know what that would feel like, and I kind of would inch, you know, away from the edge on this trail. The trail was pretty narrow, so I didn't have a, a, a long way to go to feel that safe, but I would move away from the edge, and I would say, yeah, that, that would suck if you fell down there. Well, the day after this session with you, I walked that trail like I do every day, and I got about 100 feet past this area where it turns and goes more into the forest. I was like, oh my God, dude, you had no thought whatsoever of that cliff. Not one, and it was, it was, a, it was a viable physiological reaction I would have every day walking past there. That day, nothing. I was like, whoa, this shit is powerful. And that was that one session. And to this day, I mean, how long ago were we working together? Like four or five months? I, I walk past that every day and don't have any reaction, like physiological or even intellectually going, oh, that would suck. I don't even think that. So I just, I, I anecdotally use that story to just sort of say, wow, this stuff is amazing, right? That's a great story. That's a great example that you just shared because it shows how on the table, when you were just going over and over and over, like reiterating the accident, the fall, it's like your nervous system was having the opportunity to process it and digest it uh -huh. and integrate it and complete it, you know, because you were in that safe, gentle matrix of flow. There was nothing to constrict it and hold it there. Right. So it just able to be completed. And so because it was completed there with those iterations over and over again, it's, it's, it was done. Yeah. It was done. And I got to say, I think I was 32 when that happened. I was uh, a solo carpenter. I had my own very modest carpentry business. And I, I mean, obviously I survived. I, my leg was in a cast. I sh uh, shredded my patella tendon pretty bad where they said I wouldn't walk or probably ride a bike again. But you know, my mindset was, I'm out to prove them wrong. I'm going to show him, my doctor, that I beat this thing. I'm going to be back on my bike, and I'm going to be tearing it up like I always did. So there was no, uh, I didn't have any awareness of like, well, let's, let's sort of compartmentalize this. What just happened? Let's do some healing around it. I was in get back to work mode, right? 
So think about that. For 30 plus years, mm -hmm. that experience had been just buried. Buried in, in a way that I could tell the story from a heroic point of view. Oh, yeah. I flew off a cliff and survived. You know, everyone's like, whoa, dude, that's, that's rad, right? But that, that didn't heal it, right? That just sort of boosted and maybe even buried it lower where I couldn't re-experience, right? Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So yeah. that, uh, yeah, I mean, that to me is how, how Jinshin Tara works. And I just want to key on the name Tara because uh, I had spent almost a decade as a practicing Tibetan Buddhist. That was the other connection. Right. Yeah, yeah. Right. So that when I when I saw that word in your in your uh, title of what you do, I was like, yeah, this is this is a this is a green light all the way, because Tara is like you know obviously one of the the images that were surrounding our you know our center and you know. Who's better at healing than the Buddha of compassion? <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, wow. So just, so what is, I think maybe you touched on this, but what is that process when, it, when someone gets on your table? Because to me, there, there was almost no talking there is you connecting. What, just describe what that is for you, just briefly. You mean at the beginning of a session? Yes. Well, I do different things different times at the beginning, but it basically is about connecting. Yeah, it felt like you always started at my feet. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I start by a person's side, I mean, but oftentimes it's at their feet. Yeah. I'm connecting, that's all, yeah. so that I can, I'm connecting energetically with you. So that we're kind of like entering into this this together. Yep. And so that I can enter into it and, and open up my fields of perception so that I can go there with you and feel with you. Uh-huh. So that I can do the work. But also just so that you're not alone. Right. When you're not, when you're going back and these these memories and stuff, it's so important to not feel alone, to know that you are there with someone by your side. Because so often trauma gets installed as such, because a person is alone on some level. There's not the support around them to make it to the other side. But um, I'm connecting energetically. Yep. I can actually, so I can feel your energy flow. I'm receiving um, imagery. Oftentimes I open a session where I just, I'm just waiting to receive some kind of seminal image or metaphor, which I then oftentimes will just replay back to the client and say, well, does this mean anything to you? And I just look at that as like some kind of, message from the great beyond that is helping to steer the direction of the, the treatment in a way. Uh -huh. um, that's pretty much what's happening. I felt that. I, I really did feel like, excuse me, I felt like I'm not alone there Yeah. at all. Yeah. And that, you know, again, I feel like that just facilitates this work. Mm -hmm. You know, if I'm there on the table and I'm, I'm bound up and I'm in resistance, it's, you won't be able to effectively do what you do. Yeah. And so that connecting, that, that checking in as I would first lie on the table was always big for me. And I was kind of always a little bit like, oh, I wonder what's coming up for her. Like, <laughs> right. 
I do remember um, you touching my feet, starting on my feet, and they're like, whoa, there's, there's a lot of heat or like almost like fire. And I don't know if I can tell this story, but do you remember that session? Did, was, was I saying that to you about your feet? Or, yeah. Or you, okay. you were like, the, your feet are really hot. Or you mentioned something about the word fire. And that began a whole nother journey. Uh, the fire. The fire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're, you know, in these sessions, we're not in Kansas anymore, yeah. Toto. <laughs> no, we're in not. the multidimensional realms, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah. And it's amazing that one thing triggered this whole other experience, which I don't know if I should. What do you think? Should I tell that story or not? Oh, gosh. That is such a good teaching story. It's a good teaching story because. Oh, yes. You know, I have like. God, I have like at least five or six other questions that I want to get to and, and be cognizant of the time, but I feel like we're we're on the journey. Let's keep going, don't yeah. you think? And I want to interject like a little preface to this story. Yeah. Because Jin Shintaro is a multidimensional approach, and in healing trauma, ultimately, it's not just about fixing the damage. It's about restoring harmony with the individual, with not just within themselves and spiritually, but about the commu- restoring harmony with the community, yes. with, with, with ecology, you know. And this story is a real beautiful demonstration of the, the restoration of harmony at the level of community and others in your world, like cleaning up your life so that you can really expand into the flow of your existence. Yes, beautiful preface. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. And I will also add just a brief little preface that since this uh, tent incident and my willingness to expose myself mm-hmm. the 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 fallout has been remarkable mm-hmm. in terms of people going you know what your story opened up a part of me that i hadn't looked at and it came to light thank you mm-hmm. because of your story it enabled me so this story I'm about to tell you is one of those experiences. So Christine was at my feet, and she said, wow, there's a lot of heat coming out of here. And, you know, as a former firefighter, I'm thinking fire. Where there's heat, there's probably fire. I don't think my feet were smoking, were they? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm thinking fire. And all of a sudden, I go back to an incident when I was probably 11 or 12, where two friends and I were in this sand and gravel area uh, near where I grew up, and we had walked across this whole thing. It was many, many, many acres of land, of lakes and sand and gravel pits, and we weren't supposed to be in there, but it was like our playground. And there was a house that was abandoned on the other side of the sand and gravel pit, the main house was pretty trash, garbage strewn around, and we're in there, and we're kind of playing with matches. You know, don't play with matches, kids. Um, and lighting little, tiny little fires, and nothing came of that. And I went outside, and I had a lighter, and there was a structure that looked like somebody might have been living in. It was a very small little outbuilding maybe like eight by 10, had a bed that was neatly made and a nightstand. 
And I was like, oh, let's see if this bedspread can ignite. <laughs> and next thing I know, the bedspread is like fully involved, going up in flames. And I'm like, holy shit, I got to get out of here. And I run into the main house. I'm like, boys, let's go. And we all run home. And I could hear fire engines, sirens in the distance. And when I got home, I climbed out my window onto our roof. And I look out where we had come from, and there's this huge column of smoke. And so I'm reliving this story while I'm on your table. I'm like, this is odd. Like, what's this all about? This isn't about necessarily my trauma, which I will get to why it is in a second. And I'm like, whoa, that's a big column of smoke. So kind of go back and go about my business. And I think the next day might have been a school day. This was probably a weekend. And I come home from school and there's like an unmarked police car in the driveway. And I walk in, um, and my mom's there, and she's like, there's two gentlemen who would like to speak with you. And they're uh, local detectives from the PD in the town I lived in. And they're like, um, so tell us about that fire. And I was like, yeah, I mean, it looked impressive from the smoke column. Uh, yeah, and they're like, what do you know about it? I'm like, beyond the smoke, I don't know anything. And they're like, well, we have a report that you were seen in the sand and gravel pits yesterday. I was like, yeah, we went back there. Uh, you know, we're doing goofing around like we always do, but I don't know anything about a fire. You know, I did hear some kids from Connecticut because we lived right on the border in New York and Connecticut, I, we heard them talking about maybe going to that house. You know, they were swimming. I mean, I literally am saying this, looking these guys dead in the eye and, and telling the story. Like, I fully believed that those kids from Connecticut probably started that fire. I mean, that's how I was saying it to these guys. And, wow. You know, here I am reviewing this on the table, and I keep thinking, what is up? Like, this really isn't your trauma. It was a obviously very uncool thing to do, but well, I, didn't, I didn't, wasn't making the connection. And, you know, I heard, so anyway, the, the detectives left. They got nothing out of me, and apparently my two friends also held to our story and they didn't light the thing on fire, so they could probably in good conscience say, you know what, no, I don't know anything about it. They didn't rat me out, and to this day, you know, I'm thankful for that. Um, but what came up, a few things came up on the table. You know, I did hear that a firefighter had broken his leg in this operation to put the fire out. The structure I lit on fire was completely gone. The main house was fine. Um, then, so I was probably in seventh grade when this happened. So two years later, I'm a freshman in high school. 
the high school and the middle school are on the same grounds. I'm walking the back hall to a class, you know, new freshman. And I kind of had my head down. I'd bump into this immovable object. I'm like, what? And I look up and there's this youngish man. He's probably 25 or 26, you know, pretty built, taller than me by a couple inches. And I go to sidestep and he sidesteps too. And now I'm like, what? I look up at him and he looks at me with a look that I'll never forget. It was a look of almost tenderness or compassion. And he said these words that I'll never forget. He said, there'll be no more fires, right? And I had done such a good job lying to the detectives. I was like, well, you got to keep this up. And there was something about his eyes and something about the way he asked that question. There was no threat. I had no perceived threat from this guy. And I looked at him. I said, nope, no more fires. And I, here I am reliving this whole thing on the table. So I'm still like, hadn't made the connection. And then we're, we're almost at the wrap-up of the session. I remember you asking me, have you ever reached out to this man? And I was like, no, the thought never occurred to me. <laughs> Literally. Why would I do that? And I'm like, then I, I sort of entertain that. And I'm like, well, I don't even know where he is or if he's even alive. So that was sort of left hanging in the air at the end of that session. For me, I, I you know, you, you toggled this idea of like, well, maybe he is out there and maybe I should call him or connect to him some way. I didn't even know his first name. I knew his last name, Mr. Wall. I knew he was a Vietnam vet, combat vet. And he was a part-time business teacher at our high school. So I started, I asked a, a woman who heads up our class reunion. And I was like, hey, Leah, do you remember this guy's first name? Yeah, it was Stuart. Okay, cool, Stuart Wall. I start Googling, nothing, well, something, but uh, there are more than one Stuart Walls in the, in the world. And there was one who lived in Florida and, and he was on LinkedIn. So I dug into LinkedIn, I'm on LinkedIn, not much of a presence there, but I, I have an account. And I saw that he was a coach and he lived in Florida and he was probably 83 years old maybe at that time which made sense. If I was 15 or 16, he was probably 26 or 7 when I bumped into him. And I got, I got a phone number, I think, off LinkedIn. No, I messaged him on LinkedIn. That's right. And it was very kind of nondescript message. Hey, Mr. Wall, Jamie Gilroy, you know, Fox Lane High School, you are my teacher. I want to relay an experience, and that's how I left it. And then I kind of sat with that for a little bit, and I was like, well, that's kind of cryptic. Like, maybe he's going, well, what was the experience? Do I really want to know, right? Like, who knows? 
And then I clarified. I said it was very, it was a very positive experience. So I didn't want him to think there was some potential negative thing hanging out there that someone's now going to accuse him of. So I think, oh, I left my phone number. That's what I did. I left my cell number in that, in that uh, direct message on LinkedIn. A week went by. The phone rings. I don't pick up typically if I don't recognize the number. And it went to voicemail. I'm sitting there working on my laptop. And I get, a, get that voicemail and it dings. And I'm like, oh, I wonder what that was. I pick up the voicemail. It's, it's Stuart Wall. Hey, Jamie, uh, I saw your message. I'd love to hear your experience. I go, oh boy, okay. Am I really ready to make this phone call? So I make the call and he picks up. And uh, I said, hey, St Stuart, it's Jamie, or I said, Mr. Wall, it's Jamie Gilroy, Fox Lang High. I'm the guy who lit your house on fire. I am so sorry. And he goes, I, right out of his mouth, he goes, I have to thank you. And I'm like, what? He goes, yeah. He said, you boys, what you did to that property enabled me to buy it. I'm like, I'm still stunned. I mean, the first, almost first thing out of his mouth was, I have to thank you. I'm thinking, here I am. I'm going to get read the riot act, you know, from a guy who has like held all this anger towards me for 40 plus years or whatever, 50 years. Instead, he goes, he starts the story. He goes, were it not for that fire and how trash the main house was, we couldn't have afforded this in Bedford, New York, five-acre house, no way. I have to thank you. He, now, I started counting how many times he thanked me. It was four times in the course of this conversation. And I'm thinking, the first thing I'm thinking is, this is a miracle. Like, this work, who, who would ever think that this incident, that, by the way, I'm telling you probably three people on the planet had heard the fire story before I just exposed it to the entire world. But it was, I mean, and, and I wanted to, at some point, I really wanted to get off the phone. I was like, God, this is, and we started talking. He's a triathlete. He just got back from a 10-mile bike ride. We started talking bicycles. He said, and I'll never forget this part. He said, those were some of the happiest years of my life on that property. We raised our daughter there. It was amazing. Not, you know what, the place was trashed. It was never the same. That hut, that little studio you burnt down, I, you know, I met, none of that. These were the hap some of the happiest years of my life there. And I just, I couldn't believe the efficacy of what the work was you were doing on me. I mean, I never would have thought that story had anything to do with my trauma. However, the more I thought about it, the more I thought, 
wow, dude, you're 11 or 12, and you bold-faced lied to grown men and believed it. Like, that's trauma. Like, you're, you're almost like a hardened criminal at age 11 because you are so armored up that the world is not going to hurt me. You are not going to get to me. My force field was full strength in that moment. And I looked at those cops and I said, nope, not me. And they're like, well, we can't haul the kid off the jail. We got no proof. And that was that until I ran into a wall in that back hall in the high school. And that man, yeah, he showed me, he showed me strength in a man that I had yet to experience and certainly did not experience ever in myself till many, many years later. So. You know, Jamie, that is such an incredible story because it, it's such a demonstration of how, of what I would call the multidimensionality of this work. Because when, when someone has taken their traumatic experiences and then encapsulated them within contraction and isolation, basically that creates the condition of separation. And we are cut off and separate. And by doing the journey of healing this, it opens up the flow into what I call the, like the substrate of beneficence and interconnectedness of life. Mm. And it, 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 that's why on my website I have, what is it called? Come home, to, come home to your body and to life uh-huh. because so much more becomes available as resource out of this interconnectedness that is available to all of us on the planet. Yeah. And, and, and so by cleaning up that up, you opened yourself up to that avenue of interconnectedness, created a field of love and good vibes and positivity <laughs> for yourself, for this man. We were laughing. Just, yeah, it was, just, it was just a beautiful, beautiful story. Yeah. Because you were willing to do this journey. And you know, it reminds me, I have a little quote I wanted to bring because to yeah. me this really captures the essence of this. Uh-huh. This is a quote by um, this Nigerian Yoruba psychologist philosopher, activist. He's a string of a lot of brilliant things. He's a brilliant man named Bayo Akomolafe. Mm. And here's a quote of his. He does, he does a lot of trauma work and social justice work. He says, Today when I meet people, I recognize how utterly beyond right and wrong they are, how their lives are symphonies of orchestration, how their mistakes and failings are actually cosmic ex- explorations on a scale of grandeur, and of a texture softer than our most dedicated rule books could possibly account for. Mm. And that's what this work opens up, that whole field of possibility and interconnectedness and flow and unity. And in fact, a lot of times after sessions on the table, when I ask people how they feel, they'll say things like, I feel whole, Yes. but I also feel connected to something so much larger than myself. Yes. I, I, I feel part of the unity of everything. I feel great peace. I mean, it's just, this is the nature of energy medicine Yeah. in general, and also specifically Jin Chintara. Uh-huh. Um, I'd love to put that quote in the show notes. Okay, yeah. So people can have it. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I just... Addressing what you just shared, 
I feel like I have so much energy these days since our work together mm -hmm. and since revealing myself in this way because much of, of my trauma was held, was held within these, these walls called Jamie, his body, his psyche. And I, I wake up every day and I'm like so full of this new kind of energy. I don't even know how to describe it, but it's like, it, it's like a release. I guess it's like that tension you, you were describing that's held. And when that tension is released, there's this flow. And sharing my story, especially around being born with a cleft lip and palate and living literally half my life to this date without it being repaired. Once it was repaired, I thought everything would be fixed, right? When I got my upper lip fixed finally at age 37, I was like, okay, I'm going to be a good man. I'm going to be, you know, enlightened and the best man I can be. And it, it really, it made me worse because my ego, you know, good looking alpha guy, you know, okay, now I'm going to go just be like a dog out of the kennel, right? <laughs> Instead of going, yeah, I promised I'd be a good man. Well, by sharing this, but nobody ever knew that story. One or two people, a handful of people at, at most. And, and in sharing this, I, I just feel like, wow, there's no end to the energy that I now feel in my life. And the, this experience with Stuart Wall, you know, of him sharing the positivity of that experience, right, that I always had deemed as a real deficit, a real character deficit on my part. A, you burn the house down, and B, you lied to grown men, and C, you never followed up with the guy whose house you burned down. So I just don't, do want to add this disclaimer. I am not an arsonist. I never lit another fire uh, ever again, and I became a firefighter so I could help people. Okay, there's that disclaimer. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, there was a question I wanted to ask you. Let me see what a second ago. What was it? Okay, so um okay. So your description of how you organized yourself in defensive posturing around your trauma. Okay, and that shift to you now, you you said a lot of energy, but also out of that, how would you describe who you are now as compared to who you were before having made this journey? What have you become? I guess the first word that comes to mind is awake. Mm. Like awake to, to what had been asleep. Mm -hmm. Like I've carried anger. Like my anger has been a, a simmering pot my whole life. Mm -hmm. And if, got, if it got triggered, it would boil over. Now, was I like super violent? No, I was never like smacking people, uh, you know, doing violent acts, but that anger was enough to frighten people. I mean, I've gotten into some fights and I have hit people but and, and been hit, but that was never, I, I was never aware of that until in that tent when I raged on my family in a very confined space, 
that to me was informative. I didn't know what to do with that yet until I met you and we went through our eight sessions. But I saw the level of that anger, how it informed every aspect of my life. And so what I got, what I became aware of were, oh, what are the triggers? Like I never, the only trigger I associated was trigger on a gun. I never really made a, a connection about psychological triggers that would put you into a state of flight or fight. So I began to see what are those triggers. For example, when my uh, middle child starts to dominate or verbally abuse his sister, younger sister, that triggers me. And it triggers my middle brother doing the same to me. And I was like, well, why, do you, why are you having such a strong reaction to how he's behaving? He, he's not even nearly coming close to what your brother did to you. And yet it triggered me. So to answer that question, that's sort of long-winded, but that's what I became awake to. And there's, yeah, there's no going back. It's like the cat's out of the bag the gig is up, whatever you want to say, I, I can't go back to uh, BT before 10. There's just no way. Not with the, aware, the awareness I have now. And to finish that thought, the awareness I have of the blessings that this experience has been manifesting. Right? Yeah, so how would you, given that you're a mindset coach, how would you describe your pre-mindset and your mindset now? Oh, that's such a good question. My mindset, uh, BT, was I'm right. I know what's right. I'm going to get my way. I'm going to do what I want. I mean, kind of like, like a wild dog. Like, in some extreme sense, like, yeah, I, I didn't have containment of myself. I didn't have, even with all the spiritual work I've done, there was still this aspect of me that was feral in a way. Wow. Right? Wow. And, <laughs> you know, the, in some ways, domestication gets a bad rap, but in this case, domesticating this feral Jamie has been my mission since our getting together and, and treatments. So that, what do I mean by that? I mean that the, the parts of me that I've always given lip service to, kind, compassionate, aware, uh, not believing my own story, you know, like all these little beautiful sort of sayings, I, I'm now living. And I have this almost like in a broadcast TV, they have a three second delay. I never had a three second delay, you know, like I would say fuck and they couldn't bleep it out. And I would think a thought and I didn't have that delay to go, are you sure about this thought? I just let it rip, right? So now there's this, and, and again, it, it harkens back to how you describe the Jinshin Tara treatments, this lengthening, this expanding, this flow, 
this lack of contraction. And that's what I'm feeling right now is that lack of contraction, mm -hmm. this big expansiveness. So now when Bodhi uh, acts out towards his sister, instead of flying off the handle or reacting to what he's doing, I have this expansiveness. And, and it's a, a, okay, folks, it's a work in progress, let's be honest. <laughs> but, but the fact is, I have now that awareness about that lengthening, the expansion, the three-second delay. The options. The options. What, what you showed me on the table on those eight sessions was there are now new options of how you want to be in the world, how you want to interact in the world. And it's, uh, Christine, it's mind-blowing. It's ground-shaking stuff. It ground, it's like, yeah, it's like this is the seminal moment in my existence. And that's why I feel so excited and so energized and why I wanted to start this podcast. So I want to share this message, yeah. you know? Maybe there's somebody out there listening like, wow, there's something I never told someone. And... If I did now, if I hear what Christine is saying and Jamie is saying, maybe there'll be a release there and, and a more space made available, right? Well, you know, that, that really, what you've shared is really a demonstration of how by, by making this journey that you did, it opened you up to a greater level of contribution to hum human beings. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to say, I'm not, this is, this is not about being heroic. There's nothing heroic about this. It's yeah. quite humbling and, and putting me in the proper context. Instead of being arrogant and, you know, charging through the world. I mean, I had a friend who turned me on to the Enneagram, and he's like, you're an eight. And unfortunately, I'm also an Aries. So that's like a double whammy. And when I heard that, I was like, fuck, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Damn right I'm an eight. Damn right I'm an Aries. And I'm going to do it my way. And, and now I think, wow, what a manifestation of that distorted idea of who I was. And that, and that manifestation of my force field. Right? I mean, the whole the eights thing, if anyone knows the Enneagram, they don't want to be controlled. They don't want to be dominated. They don't want to be vulnerable. Well, here in front of you folks is a reformed eight. Well, it's like the kind of defensive organization and patterning that occurs in the wake of trauma makes us more and more and more. We, we become more and more, and, and then by doing the, the journey of trauma healing, we become less and less, and yet connected to everything, everything, everything. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I want to I just start to, to move towards wrapping this up. I am so into this conversation. I think we're probably going past our time that we had thought we would. And I'm looking at just a few of these questions that I had left for you. I almost feel like we've covered everything. Yeah. Um, you know, I think, yeah, I, I really feel like some of these questions just you've addressed. I mean, I guess the one thing that I would say or ask before we go to wrap up is, 
what happens after the eight sessions? So I, I can kind of answer that I felt very complete after the eighth session. We did do a follow-up, and I think you, you mentioned that in your treatment plan. But do people come back for, like, tune-ups, or what's that look like when you're done with a client, done with your eight sessions? I, I don't feel like you're ever done with a client. Right. Um, it's up to the client. I'm totally available for follow-up maintenance sessions on uh -huh. an as-needed basis. Yeah, I've had people come for two rounds of eight sessions. It's just what their need is. I see. Because how much a person gets out of the work really is a is a is determined by um, who they are and their level of development already. Yes. The complexity of what they're bringing to the table, um, how willing they they are to make use of the educating that I provide a lot of. Yep. How much they're willing to to make use of the self care I provide after every session. Yeah. So it's just really dependent on the individual. That self care was very helpful. It was homework. I think you mentioned like yeah, yeah. in one of the our first phone calls. How are you at doing homework? And I thought to myself, I never ever did homework, but <laughs> uh, <laughs> in this case, I, I felt like, oh yeah, I, I'll definitely do your homework, mm -hmm. and I did, and I still have this one beautiful image that you. Uh, you helped me create, I think it was probably in one of our first sessions, of like a place to go to when things got too hot. And I use that very, very often. Because mm -hmm. things, let's, let's face it, things still get hot. Yeah. I mean, things are still, I'm still uh, traveling in this human realm. And there are interactions that don't go well. And it's about repair when they don't go well. Um, and there's still beliefs uh, rumbling around my being that I have to look at and address and decide if I believe them or not. Mm -hmm. And there are behaviors that I am continually modifying to, to really have this lengthening and stretching and flow impact all parts of my life, not just these close relationships with my children or Megan, but just as I go out in the world. So this concentric, like dropping a stone in a calm lake and how those rings go out is how I see this process. And the more, the more we peel off one round of layers, then the next round of layers can rise up to the surface to be looked at yeah. and addressed. Yep. And on, you know, as a human being, it, it never ends because who we are goes back eons across the ancestral line. Yeah. So we're carrying not just our, this lifetime stack of issues, but the whole lineages of eons of ancestors. Yes, and that brings me to this reframe I had recently, because there was a lot of shame and a lot of guilt around this incident that went down in the tent. I was not at my best. Uh, and in that, I felt like the way forward is it's just one foot and and uh as this dear friend sue mason said take the step and the ground will appear and i feel like that's what's happening right now it's like i don't really know where this is going to go but part of the shock of what happened in that tent was you've spent your whole life working on yourself like how could this blind spot whale you and your family like, how, how'd that happen? And what I've come to understand is 
this journey that my soul put me on is what it's all about. And for, for all of my life up until that point in the tent and then afterwards meeting you and going through our sessions, I never appreciated my soul for what it put me through or what it brought me to. Not put me through, but brought me to. It's opportunity. That's all. Either you take it or you don't. There's no bad in not taking the opportunity. You're probably just going to repeat some behaviors or experiences. But I came away with a new appreciation for this soul's journey. Like, oh, wow, okay. Yeah, it's been pretty sucky. This evolution of Jamie has sucked and yet has brought tremendous awareness and awakening. And for that, I'm so grateful to the soul. Well, that, that prompts me to want to say something about that and that I remember many years ago, maybe 30 or more years ago, I read some book by Ram Das, and he was talking about some relationship he had with this disembodied being called Emmanuel. And somewhere in the story, Ram Das is asking something about how can such horrible things like sexual abuse happen? And Emmanuel simply answers, the soul knows what it's doing. Uh, and I've carried that with me forever. Yeah. And that brings me to the sense of, even though I am working with people on the darkest parts of their lives, there's something so profoundly elegant and grace-filled and beautiful about working with them. Because as they're, they're there because they want to heal you know, their darknesses. But when my hands are on their, their bodies, giving treatments, I feel like I am on some, at the altar of something so profoundly sacred. I am in reverence because I get to experience, even though they have their story and their tales of woe, I get to feel the glory of what a tremendously precious, sacred being is on the table. Wow. You know, I, I feel that, I perceive it. It's like, it is so beautiful, mm. it's so beautiful, and I'm just in awe, in awe. Yeah. And that speaks volumes to who you are. And thank you. <laughs> well, I, thank you. <laughs> I think that's, that's a, a beautiful place to wrap this conversation. I would love to keep talking. Uh, I think we would need to go make some tea and have some lunch, and then we could just put the headphones and get in front of the mic again. But I do want um, you to have a chance to say how people can find you uh, where they can find you, and the mm -hmm. best way to reach out to you. Okay. I live in Paonia, Colorado, on the western slope of the Rockies. And um, I can be contacted via an email outreach from my website. So my website is www.gracefulchangeem.com. So that is spelled gracefulchange, the letter E, the letter M, as in Michael, dot com because that stands for energy medicine. Uh -huh. My business name is Graceful Change Energy Medicine. And I do in-person treatments as well as virtual distance treatments. Uh-huh. Yeah. And are, you find those effective? I was, I was so surprised during COVID. Yes. When um, somebody reached out to me to want to work with me, and I said, well, you know, I'm not treating people right now. And she said, well, we'll do it virtually. And I said, nah, I, I'm not a psychic healer. And she said, I trust you. Wow. And so we did it, and to my total surprise, the, the work was even more effective uh -huh. than in-person work. 
Wow. And so I have done a couple of those. Yep. So, yeah, huh. I do work virtually. It's funny because um, my wife, Megan, also does like shamanic journeying and healing. And mm-hmm. and in COVID, much of that was done on Zoom. Mm-hmm. And I asked her, are these actually effects? She's like, unbelievable. Yeah. And so there are Zoom sessions that I do uh-huh. virtually with people. And are you in Boulder occasionally? Yes. You know, um, I see people in Boulder when I go there periodically. Uh-huh. If there's a, a groundswell of requests from Boulder, then I will go to Boulder to treat people. Yep. Or if I'm going to Boulder, I'll reach out to people who see me and I'll let them know I'm coming and they'll sign up for treatments. Nice. Yeah. Good. So all of that will be in the show notes of how to reach Christine. Her website will be on there. And I just, I, I cannot tell you, I'm like, my heart is so full right now. <laughs> and I'm in such appreciation for you. And it has been a while since we've run into each other in town and just seeing your, your light. I mean, literally, when you walked in our mudroom, you were, you were just lit up in this beautiful purple and this jaunty hat, and it's snowing outside, and you came in, and I was just like, oh, yes, finally, yeah. I get to see you again. I know. There's so, a mutual experience to yes. be able to connect with you again, too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I always just carry such a care for the people that have worked with me, always. I can feel yeah. that. Yeah. So thank you so much for this incredible conversation. Yeah. And uh, I look forward to more. Me too. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah. If you like the show and listen on Spotify, please follow and rate the podcast. If you are on Apple, you can rate and write a review. And if you want to show us some love on whatever podcast platform you listen on, that would be much appreciated. This podcast has been edited and produced by Gilroy Productions. Thanks, buddy. Love you.